giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robot Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Lindsay Christensen, and with me today is Tess Posner, CEO at AI for All. Tess, thanks for joining. I'm very excited to have you today. Thanks so much. I'm really excited to be here. I've got many questions for you, <laughs> uh, but to get started, uh, could you give us an overview of what AI for All is? Yeah, sure. So thanks again for having me on the show. AI for All is a nonprofit organization that was started a little over two years ago. And our focus is to increase diversity and inclusion in artificial intelligence, which obviously is, is such an important technology and it's shaping so many different things in our daily lives and so many different jobs and factors in the economy that it's really important to have people that represent our society and its complexity part of shaping and creating the technology from the beginning. So that's really why we got started at AI for All. And this is a basic question, but I think it's worth going over because I, I do see some confusion. But what are you actually referring to when you talk about artificial intelligence? Yeah. So when we talk about AI, which is many things, and there's a lot of obviously misconceptions about it in the, in the media. But when we talk about AI, we're talking about a branch of computer science that is focused on helping solve problems or make decisions with computers. And so it's a growing subfield of computer science that you often hear it interchangeably described as machine learning, but we think about machine learning as a subfield of artificial intelligence, which is also a subfield of computer science. And it is something that is growing incredibly fast. Like I think we've seen a lot of attention in the media, especially over the last few years about AI and its implications, whether it's about self-driving cars or the ways that we use it every day, like in smartphones or recommendation engines like Netflix or shopping online. There's many ways that it's starting to be integrated into our daily lives some that are more visible than others, but certainly it's captured the imagination of the media in a lot of profound ways recently. Yeah. Do you have a sense of how quickly AI is advancing and maturing? Or is maybe my perception of it even skewed by media attention? <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a lot of different perceptions about that, like people that are talking about conscious machines or machines that have human-like intelligence. And the reality is that AI right now today is able to solve a narrow set of problems. And you have different subsectors of the AI field that things like um, computer vision, which is the ability for computers to recognize or identify images. And this is a subfield of AI that's more advanced than others at this time. And we're seeing a lot of different applications for this type of, of work. Like one that's been seen in the media a lot is around facial recognition, or even like when you pick up some of the new smartphones, it's able to let you into your phone by recognizing your face. And so this is because of advances in computer vision. Um, you also have natural language processing, which is another subfield of AI that's really about speech recognition. And so you see this with like language translation applications. I was just in Europe and in France, and I was able to take advantage of that. 
um, as well as Siri or other types of voice recognition assistance that a lot of people are using every day. So there are advances, again, in these more narrow areas of AI around specific, and robotics is another one that you see talked about a lot, where you see robots now able to grasp items, for example, or walk and do different tasks. But to bring all of those things together and say that we can have an intelligence that matches humans is still very, very far away from where we are now, a lot of the experts say. And it could be never that we reach that Mm -hmm. um, sort of end state that people like to talk about. But a lot of researchers are more focused on what kinds of problems can AI help us solve now, rather than focusing on this potential future piece that we may never reach. Thanks. I think that provides a really good ground base for us to then talk about some of the other work that you're doing. So what is your week to week look like? What are you focused on? Yeah, so at AI for All, we're really focused on, again, thinking about who is building and shaping the technology. And so we've started on that mission by running education and mentorship programs focused on young people and really helping expose them to this important technology and providing them with the skills that they might need to get into this field if that's where they're interested in going. So we run summer camps in collaboration with AI-focused research universities like Stanford, Carnegie Mellon University, Princeton, uh, Columbia, UC Berkeley. Those are some of our partners. And we have 11 total this summer. We're bringing in 300 high school students to go to these universities and learn about AI and get to work on AI projects that's related to research going on at those universities. And so they're getting exposure to not only the technical skills, but seeing how is this technology being applied to important challenges facing the world today. They work on projects around poverty, disaster relief, medical diagnosis and treatment, mobility for aging populations, fake news, bias, and Mm. so really interesting problems that the field is working on today and really helps give the young people a sense of what's possible and how to actually build those project-based skills and critical thinking around the technical concepts. Um, We also connect them with role models and mentors in the field. We find that because there's not a lot of women and people of color and people of different backgrounds in the field, (laughs) there's a lack of representation and therefore role models that people can see, okay, I can picture myself in this field. And so we like to recruit mentors and role models from those areas and give students a sense of what those folks are doing along very different pathways and backgrounds and applications of AI, which we found to be really, really exciting for the students. Do you have off the top of your head any stats on what diversity in this area looks like today? Yeah, so it's pretty abysmal. Recent reports show that only 12% of researchers, AI researchers worldwide are female. 12%. Yeah. Um, which is obviously worse than the tech sector generally. And we don't have good numbers for race and ethnicity and other demographic factors. We're actually hoping to get those numbers. But unfortunately, there's not good research there. But uh, another stat that I'll share is just that 80% of the post-secondary faculty, so those teaching AI at universities, are male. 
So that just gives you a sense of like who these students are learning from and the fact that, you know, that's resulting in only 12% of the field being female. Are we already experiencing the negative effects of having a lack of diversity? Absolutely. I think that there's two things that I want to mention about that. One is there's sort of the the risks associated with a lack of diversity, which in AI is particularly disturbing. Hmm. Because we are building AI systems to reflect and learn from human experience and data sets that involve the real world, we're seeing that our existing societal biases around race and gender are creeping into AI and machine learning systems. And often this is unintentional. It may be a matter of just you know not having the right checks and balances or having the right questions being asked throughout the product development life cycle. Um, but we are seeing there's a lot of studies that have come out around like facial recognition, for example, that has shown that it's better at recognizing white male faces than at recognizing people of color and especially women of color. And this may seem like, why does that matter? It's a huge deal because facial recognition is used in airports, in immigration, in hiring, in all kinds of applications that have life-changing impact on people's lives. And so having error and bias based on these factors is hugely problematic. And again, there's a lot of factors that go into that bias, but we believe at AI for All that one really critical way to address that is to ensure you have representation in the room and who's building these technologies because they're more likely to notice these things and bring it up and ask questions about which data sets are being used or how these use cases are being developed or how they're being tested. So I think that that is a root cause solution that we need to address in addition to putting other things into place to prevent bias. What happens if we don't treat this issue with urgency? I imagine there are some potential, you know, worst case scenarios that have caused you to also to be especially passionate about this area. Yeah, well, I think that one of the promises of AI is that it'll help us make decisions and automate some of our work as humans to increase efficiency or help solve problems, right? And so more and more decision making is being outsourced to AI. And so this is around, you know, hiring, there's a lot of AI being used to screen applicants for for jobs, for example. We've seen it in parole to help judges make better decisions based on looking at statistical data about likelihood to recommit crimes. So we've seen it in a lot of different applications, financial scores, credit scores, really that AI is determining access to key services and opportunities more and more. We already have issues of equity and marginalization in these systems. And so what we're seeing is that AI could potentially exacerbate that if it mirrors some of those issues and existing biases and discriminatory practices. So I think that as AI becomes more embedded into these systems, the more disturbing it is to have these issues of bias come up. The other side of it, to take a little bit more of a different view, is that it's a missed opportunity. So we know that having diversity and inclusion will increase profitability, it will increase creativity, it will increase innovation. And so what are we missing out on? Not having those voices included in AI. 
And I really believe that, you know, AI is an exciting space. It's really promising to be applied towards accelerating our progress in key areas. But I think we're not going to reach that if we don't have people from diverse backgrounds that are thinking about problems differently, thinking about different types of problems. And a lot of the programs that we run with young people showcase this really well because our students go back and they apply this technology to problems that they care about in their communities. Um, We've had students work on things like building apps to serve kids with autism, tracking and monitoring the spread of wildfires, dealing with water quality issues. And these are all things that students came up with based on their life experiences. This is maybe also, personally, I'm interested. How do you approach having a productive conversation with someone who maybe doesn't get the diversity crisis and specifically maybe who is actively working on machine learning and AI and they're kind of, you know, have tunnel vision on, I want to just hire the best person, you know, the classic best person for the job, you know, maybe the best mathematician or with the best algorithms. And they're not thinking about these other elements. Do you have an approach to helping people understand this? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's definitely something that you know, there's a lot of people that are bought into this problem and are working on solving it, which is challenging and takes a lot of work. And then there's the work of convincing people that it is a problem, which unfortunately is true. <laughs> we do need to do that convincing. And yeah, I mean, I'll take a di- different approaches depending on what somebody's resistance is. A lot of times we come back to the business case for diversity and inclusion you know, pointing to Mm -hmm. the research that's being done in that area. Because not everybody is going to care about it from an equity issue perspective, which, you know, you could argue should be motivating. But at the end of the day, we need to make progress regardless of people's beliefs around that. And so from a purely business standpoint, diversity is good business. And there's been a ton of research on that. You know, a recent Intel study showed that If we increase diversity in the tech sector, it'll add $500 billion to the economy every year. Or another study from the Kapor Center that showed that companies lose $18 billion a year from employees in the tech sector leaving due to discrimination and harassment. So not only are they losing money, but there's a lot of money being left on the table for those that do solve this problem and are able to have diverse leadership and workplaces. So I think that's a good argument, but I think we also need to get at the root causes of a lot of these issues, which takes education and awareness around issues of systemic factors that are are leading to this. And so that takes a willingness to look at those things. And they're, they're sometimes really hard to look at, especially if you're coming from a place of privilege and maybe not having looked at this yourself, it can be uncomfortable to look in the mirror and say, wow, I've been not even aware of these systems myself and how I've been contributing to them. So that's a wake up call for a lot of people. But I think it's it's necessary to make sure that we have that level of inquiry going on and not just on the surface level. But I do think, again, that to open up the conversation, making the business case is really important as well. Yeah, on the the topic of privilege, I read an article that you wrote recently where you mentioned the importance of humility from allies and people in power. 
What does that mean and what does that look like in practice? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's something that certainly I think about myself as a white person who is wanting to be an ally in this space and thinking about how I can be self-aware and continue to learn. Um, So I think in practice, it's really about doing your own work and not relying on other people to do it for you. So we often talk about, for example, putting the burden on women and people of color to solve these issues, which is not fair, first of all, because not only are we burdened by the impact of these issues, but then we also have to solve them. And that can be really lead to burnout and be too much, frankly, and also just not fair. So how do we bring more allies in to support and make sure that they're doing their own work rather than just burdening the people that are already marginalized to do the work? So I think tangibly that looks like allies getting involved and creating groups amongst themselves to figure out, you know, what can white people do to take ownership and take action here? Or what can men do to support women rather than just putting it all on the women or people of color? So I think that's really important. And Mm -hmm. just continuing to stay humble from a personal level and saying, I don't know, like I might be making mistakes all over the place. And that's just part of this. And I need to own that. And you know, continue to improve and not say like, oh, I have this figured out. I'm like a good white person who's like doing all the right things and checking all the boxes. And it's, it's not about that. You know, this is dismantling centuries of oppressive systems and it's not going to happen overnight and we're going to make a lot of mistakes and that's okay. Like we'll get through it, but own that. I think that's what I'm trying to do. And it's, it's challenging. And I think a lot of people don't want to, because it's hard to admit that we're not doing everything right. (laughs) Yeah. And I think, you know, we're also have been conditioned early on to not talk about these things or been told that these things are awkward, like talking about Mm -hmm. race or inequality. I've been thinking a lot about this as well and trying to always remember that allies a verb Mm. and not a noun and Part of that action is this, you know, a lot of days fumbling through it or not really saying the right thing, but that you have to to do that work. Yeah, it's like worth being uncomfortable to actually solve this problem. (laughs) But it's hard because then you have to feel like embarrassed or humiliated or guilty and like deal with those feelings and put them aside and keep moving forward. But you're right. It's a verb. I love that. Do you have any sort of go-to resources or books that maybe someone wanting to better educate themselves around some of this allyship could check out? Yeah, absolutely. I think in the AI space, particularly, there's several books that I would recommend. One is called Algorithms of Oppression, and I would definitely recommend checking that out. Um, And there's another book called Automating Inequality. And those two are like staple. That's the 101. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and seeing how it matters for the tech and AI sector specifically, because I think a lot of these conversations are focused on just broader um, issues. But I think if you're interested in how this is getting built into some of the new and emerging technologies, those are really critical resources. There's also the gender shade study. If you're interested in learning more about facial recognition issues that I talked about, 
Tim Nitgebru and Joy Bulamwini from MIT Media Lab and Microsoft did this research called Gender Shades, and it's at gendershades.org. And you can read all about that and see how it's progressing and what kinds of actions have been taken as a result of that research. That's great. We'll add those to the show notes as well, so so folks can have an, an easy link there. On the topic of automation, some people think that artificial intelligence and automation, robotics, will actually hurt job prospects, maybe specifically for underrepresented groups, and take away jobs. What's your take on that conversation? It's sort of a different, awkward conversation that's happening where maybe there's some fear around how AI is going to impact jobs and maybe even blue-collar jobs. Yeah, definitely. There's been a lot of debate about that in terms of, oh, all our jobs are going to go away (laughs) to 50% of our jobs are going to go away. And I think the reality is we really don't know. It's all prediction at this point. But we do know that there will be change regardless, because there always is. Like We've seen that in other major transformations in the economy. There's always churn and jobs being impacted by technology. So the question is, how much and who will it affect? And I think I'm convinced from what I've read that a lot of that change will impact certain types of jobs. For example, like we know that self-driving trucks are a pretty big change that's coming that's in more in the near term in terms of transformation of the workforce. And so there's 2 million truck drivers that are going to be directly impacted by that. Or... In the retail space, we've seen that there's going to be you know, more automation in terms of cashierless stores and other ways that those types of jobs will either change or go away. So I think it's imperative that we do look at that and see what is the most likely and who is the most likely to be impacted, um, which are some of the lower wage jobs. And so how do we protect those workers and put in the right policies into place to ensure that they're not as affected by that transition. So some of the ways I think are obviously retraining opportunities. There's a lot of innovation right now in fast track training opportunities and apprenticeship programs that I think have a lot of promise, where you don't have to go back to get a four-year degree to shift careers, but instead go back for a more accelerated experience of several months or so and have that direct connection to the workforce afterwards. Um, And you see that happening with like coding boot camps, for example, where these programs will not even cost anything unless you get a job. And I think that's a really exciting model because it connects the education directly to the jobs and is able to change and iterate along with the market rather than having to go back to school for many years by the time you get out, that job may have changed already because we're accelerating the pace of change in the workforce as well. But I think it's a bigger question of how we prepare in terms of education, how we prepare people for a new world that frankly will change at a faster pace. And we, we're not having jobs for 10, 20, 30 years anymore. The shelf life of skills is decreasing. <laughs> And so how do we create a system that's more dynamic to allow for people to come in and out and learn lifelong and be able to adapt and 
move around in the same way that the economy is shifting in that in that way. And I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done to enable that at a mass scale. Do you ever think we'll get to a place in the U.S. where we'll tax on automation or other technologies that cause a, a decrease in available jobs? You mean tax companies for automating jobs? Right. In order to provide more cushion, I guess it was one proposal I heard uh, from AOC mm. actually around a potential way to make sure we're supporting our most vulnerable citizens as jobs become automated. That's that's interesting. But it seems like it might be <laughs> a stretch <laughs> to get enough votes behind. Yeah, we'll see. It's a question of whether the government is willing to, in a sense halt or be willing to slow down productivity to enable that, um, which I don't know how realistic that is, given that I think one of the reasons why everyone's investing in AI is because it has this potential to advance productivity or profitability. So whether or not the government is willing to, you know, potentially slow that down with a tax like that, I don't know. But I do think the money has to Mm. come down from somewhere to support these workers. And so I think it's great to have these like big ideas. We need big ideas about how to fund this at scale. Um, So in my opinion, like bring it on, bring on all those ideas and try to see which ones are, are feasible. I have seen a lot of models where employers are investing in like apprenticeship programs and training programs. So not so much a tax, but more like they're investing in their workforce. And I think that's promising mm-hmm. because, again, it's that connection directly to the jobs that are, are available now versus going to learn something where there may not be jobs available for it. But the question is, how do you scale that? How do you provide the right incentives for employers mm-hmm. to adopt models like that? And how do you ensure that it's accessible to the ones that need it the most? So shifting gears here a little bit, I want to make sure that I save some time to talk about some of the other roles and organizations you've worked with, which are super interesting. But maybe even going back even further, what has sort of brought you into the world of social entrepreneurship and where did that passion come from? Yeah. So it first started in high school, actually. I was 16 and I think I wanted to be either a movie director or in the CIA. (laughs) Okay. I like where this is going Uh, already. (laughs) Yeah, that was uh, my teenage dream. And then I got the chance to travel to El Salvador. There had just been a major earthquake there and I traveled with Habitat for Humanity and I actually got to build a house with a family on an entire house. And it was, as you can imagine, for a 16 year old incredibly transformative for me coming, you know, from the United States, first of all, and seeing that in other places, they didn't have access to clean water, to healthcare, to education, to these basic things that I totally took for granted, made me wake up to my privilege and say, wow, there's something very wrong going on here that just because I was born in a different zip code means I somehow get access to all these things. Like that doesn't make any sense. And so I completely shifted my career aspirations at that point and tried to think about like, how can I try to get involved in solving that? The spark of that passion started then. And I ended up getting into the education space as 
one way, one lever for change in terms of opportunity is education. And so I, I worked in New York City public schools, working on a program that taught competitive debate to students that were at risk of dropping out. And it had amazing results, teaching them critical thinking skills and empowerment and kind of confidence and public speaking and providing resources and mentors. And that was a really amazing experience. But I think a lot of the challenges that I saw through my early years of this journey was just how challenging it can be to scale these programs because you have something that really works well on like a local level or at one school, Mm -hmm. but how do you bring that to move the needle? And that's why I got interested in social enterprise as being an avenue for innovation. Like how do we create new funding models, new ways to drive again that scale so it actually can be a systemic level change rather than just something that's is great, but is is small and difficult to bring to more people. And then where did you go after the teaching and, and working on that debate program? Yeah, so then I went back to grad school, where I took this program at Columbia, that was social work and social enterprise. And it was an amazing program, because you had to learn all the skills to become a social worker, but then also got to take business classes around like economics and finance and management and really prepare you to understand how to fund and scale these types of social impact initiatives and also some of the more direct practice skills that you would need to be a practitioner. So it was a really amazing experience and I got to intern in the foster care system as a coordinator where I got to work with families that were dealing with the system and and seeing the many, many challenges of that system. And then afterwards, I ended up moving out here to the Bay Area to work additionally in the foster care system, but more focused on the education and employment side of it. And what, um, what organization was that with? That was First Place for Youth which is an amazing organization based in Oakland. They provide housing and education and employment to young people that are transitioning out of the foster care system. In California, 60% of those young people end up homeless within the first year, which is just absolutely ridiculous. And so this program was really effective in not just providing housing, but also ensuring they're on a pathway toward self-sustainability. And so I ran their education and employment programs to help them get into first of all, explore themselves and their interests, and then select a career path, try to get a job and into college. And it was a really amazing program that is still doing great work. Definitely recommend anybody check it out. And has most of the work you've been doing been focused in either the super local or around the United States? So after I left First Place for Youth, I went to the Sama Group, And I started a program called Sama School, which is building on a lot of my experience prior, but really focusing on the digital divide and how tech skills or digital skills are really critical to even participating in the economy, period. Even for a customer service job, you need to have basic tech skills now. So we created a digital skills training bootcamp focused on um, low-income communities And first, we launched in the U.S., in San Francisco and several other places, in Arkansas and New York. 
And then I also expanded it into East Africa in Nairobi. Oh, wow. And so got to spend some time there, which was an amazing experience and had an incredible team out there. And we were working with local partners to incorporate digital skills training into what they were doing with local communities. So that that was sort of your first foray specifically into focusing on tech and digital and and how that could impact the communities you were working with? Yes, exactly. And that actually came from an experience at First Place for Youth. We, a lot of times, were helping, you know, young people that were getting their first jobs and seeing that to get a job at Safeway um, or a Walgreens or a CVS, you know, your first job, you need to fill out a computer-based assessment. If you hadn't grown up with a computer in your household and you weren't necessarily as exposed to interfacing with a computer or typing, you actually would be at a disadvantage because these tests were timed. So you would have like, you know, let's say 10 minutes (laughs) to fill out this customer service test. And if you didn't complete it as quickly as everybody else, you're automatically out of the running. That's just for a customer service job. And so that really disturbed me that as digital skills are becoming more just ubiquitous for every single industry, that's going to be a critical divider in terms of who can participate in the economy and not. So that's what really sparked my interest in technology and how that's connected to equity and inclusion in the economy. Did you see firsthand any, call them success stories that hit home for you? Oh, many, many success stories. One of my favorites is we set up a center in central in the Central Valley of California, a training center, and we were hosting this 10-week boot camp to provide digital skills and also future-oriented skills like teaching yourself to learn, critical thinking, branding yourself, marketing yourself, entrepreneurial skills. A lot of this is what's required to succeed in a fast-changing economy. And one woman that went through our training was a retired truck driver who had drove a million miles with no accidents. And she was 70 years old. And she went through our program and got a job as a consultant for a truck driving company, um, which was an online job that, you know, she learned basically how to market her skills and also the digital skills required to use these platforms. And she was able to get a job in that way. And I think that story I just remember so well because it really is the case that there's so much potential in the economy that's untapped and that we're missing out on all of this great talent that may not have the resources to get connected, but there's so much potential there. And so I think for me, seeing many examples of that all over the country and all over the world of potential being tapped into and seeing people just needing the tools to get that opened up was pretty amazing and still inspires me today. Yeah, that is an amazing story. I love that. And am I right that you also worked with the Obama administration at some point? Yeah, so after Sama School, I worked on this initiative called Tech Hire, which launched out of the Obama administration and now is housed in an independent nonprofit called Opportunity at Work. And we were working with communities who basically uh, became tech hire communities and they were implementing more inclusive hiring pathways into technology for underrepresented populations. And it was a great initiative because 
we were working not just with training providers and technology, but also employers, community-based organizations, and governors and mayors who are saying, yes, technology is an amazing opportunity for upward mobility for my community, but we need to make these pathways accessible to populations that wouldn't otherwise get access. And this is not just an imperative to increase economic opportunity, but also to create competitive talent pipelines for the businesses that they're trying to grow in their communities. So we had 72 communities across rural areas, across mid-sized cities, and in, in the big cities that were doing really innovative work around this. And it was an amazing experience. That's so cool. So that's now independent? Yes. And if folks are interested, opportunityatwork.org, they're doing really great work. They're based out of D.C., and focusing on what they call rewiring the economy, which I love that term, and just rewiring the ways that people get access to opportunity. So uh, what's next for AI for All? Yeah, we're really excited about our summer camp programs. And so we have them happening at 11 different universities. The other piece that we've just launched, which I didn't mention before, but is a brand new program called Open Learning. And this is really building on what we've seen work from our summer camps in terms of AI curriculum and how to make that approachable and accessible, and also based on solving problems and projects around some of these key issues. And we've now put that up in a web-based format for really anyone can sign up and take it, but it's meant for teachers or STEM educators to incorporate into what they're already doing. And so we've done pilots, for example, with the Girl Scouts who have incorporated this AI component into what they're already doing with STEM um, in Texas, for example. So that's available online. And our vision is to actually reach a million people worldwide with this model because we really see a gap in terms of this beginner level accessible AI education that's really not not available. A lot of the AI training that you'll see online is pretty much for people that already have a computer science background and isn't really able to be for everyone and really inclusive and accessible. So that's that's the niche that we're trying to fill right now. And we're really, really excited to continue building that. And that's at our website, AIforall.org, open learning program. And people can check it out and provide feedback. Right now, it's just in beta. So we're really looking for feedback from partners and students to help us improve it before a wider release in September. And are there any other ways that folks could um, contribute or participate? Absolutely. So first and foremost, we are building this amazing network of up-and-coming talent in the AI space. So if folks that are listening have connections to internships or mentorship opportunities at their companies, that is something we're really, really interested in talking to you about and building that network to support our students. Also, we provide uh, mentorship to the students. So if you're interested in, in the AI space and want to get involved as a mentor or volunteer, those opportunities are on our website. We're also just really interested to hear new and interesting projects that the students could potentially work on. As some of you in the AI space know, it can be challenging to get great data sets to work on projects. Um, we use resources like Kaggle and other open source data sets. 
but that's always something that we're interested in as well. If you know either ideas for projects or actual data sets that our students can use towards those projects, that would be awesome. And if folks want to follow along with you, what's the, the best way to do that? Yeah, I guess Twitter is always a good way. I'm continuing to post about what we're up to at AI for All. We also have a newsletter that people can sign up for on our website where we share our learnings and just updates on the programs and how to get involved. Um, And then LinkedIn, of course, is another place where we update on AI for All as well. Well, that's great. Tess, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for sharing your story and your passion and tips for how we can improve and help and give back. And I personally feel really grateful to have uh, learned from you today. Thank you. And thank you for all the great questions and such an interesting discussion and for sharing as you do on this podcast. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at Lindsay3D. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.